Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, it's a new year. And guys, this is going to be the year of years. Yes, I know that 2024 is an election year, but 2023, gang, is where we're going to do the hard work and build the foundations from top to bottom and east to west to make sure that American democracy survives for now and into the future so that the American experiment survives. I want you to go to lincolnproject.us and sign up or join the union.us and sign up for our volunteer efforts. I want to say thanks to everybody for your listenership and for your support of the Lincoln Project and our mission. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to the Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by Trig Olson, Senior Advisor to the Lincoln Project and President of Viking Strategies, LLC, a Washington, D.C.-based public affairs and political consulting firm. Trigby, welcome back. Thanks, Reed, for having me on. I'm also joined by Jeff Timmer, also senior advisor to the Lincoln Project, former executive director of the Michigan Republican Party, and host of the podcast, A Republic, If You Can Keep It, wherever fine shows are found. Jeff, welcome back. I'm glad to be here, Reed. All right, gang. So we're recording this a day before January 6th, but folks will listen to it on Friday the 6th. And two years, guys, since this insurrectionist mob you know, at the behest of Donald Trump, with the encouragement of at least 132 members of the current Republican conference, you know, attacked the Capitol, attacked American democracy. And before I get into sort of reflections on that, I'm reading John Meacham's new book about Abraham Lincoln called And There Was Light. And in it, he relates the story of the pre-inaugural period for Lincoln in 1861, and that Remember back then the inauguration took place in March. And so the certification vote, which is now so infamous, famous and infamous in America, took place sometime in February. And John Breckinridge, who was the vice president from South Carolina, had run against Lincoln and lost and was responsible like Mike Pence was for counting the electoral votes. Winfield Scott, who was commander of the Union Army at the time or the American Army at the time, made sure that no one was going to get to the Capitol to do anything to disrupt the process. And that he said if anybody tried, he would strap them to a cannon and shoot them out the Capitol window. South Carolina had already seceded. And there was a lot of talk of, you know, people storming the Capitol, people attempting to take the boxes of electoral votes as they made their way from the Senate chamber to the House chamber for tabulation, you know, surrounded by cavalry troops. So, the truth is, guys, January 6, 2021 was not the first time that the electoral count process was threatened. The difference was in 1861, the entire federal government was on the same side, which is we're going to count these votes. And they did not have a president on the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue who was personally attempting to block that effort. So I just I thought it was an interesting sort of reminder that we have seen these kinds of things before, ultimately. Lincoln is inaugurated, the Civil War begins, and the rest is, as they say, history. 
So that was a fascinating sort of parallel in American history, Trigby. So tell me, as you look now two years on, are we in a better place? Are we in a worse place in the context of January 6th? That's a great question, Reed. In some ways, I think the nation is better because I think there's the realization that came from what happened that day and that democracy truly was under threat in the Trump era. I think at the same time, though, you know, there's a tendency to live in the moment and not focus on the big picture. And the big picture is we have to get through a peaceful transition of power on January 20th, 2025. And we just completed an election. It's 11 o'clock on the 5th today. In about an hour, Congress is going to reconvene and they are struggling with the transition of power. So one six in many ways, it may be worse because it's the starting of a trend that peaceful transition of power, orderly transition of power is less likely to be occurring in the United States today than it had been for the previous 150 years. You know, one thing, you know, as we tie the chaos of the speaker's vote and Kevin McCarthy's both impotence and ineptitude to January 6th, I mean, as I noted just at the top there, you know, you've got 20 members of his conference who, in my mind, are not really Republicans. They're certainly not really conservatives as we would have known it or described anyone. They're, they're MAGA, they're ultra MAGA, they're America first. And as I noted, more than half of the Republican conference voted not to certify the 2020 election two years ago. And I would venture to say that if they were asked to do that vote again, the vast majority of the 132 would vote the same way. Yeah. I, you know, I remember thinking back on January 6, 2021, I said then, and I've said several times since, that the attack we were witnessing was the most dangerous and worst in American history, worse than Pearl Harbor, worse than 9-11 in the sense that it didn't come from an external enemy that could be defeated. It came from within and above. It was us attacking us. And I still think that here now, two years later, we are in a very precarious position. And because at the time in January 6, 2021, most of the Republicans in elected position did not support the attack, the coup attempt. But since almost all of them have signed up and excused and abetted it, they become accessories after the fact. And I really think that the wholesale attempt to normalize what happened on January 6, 2021 makes this arguably a more dangerous position right now than it was even two years ago, because I think there's about you know, half of Americans who don't see it as that big of a deal, as big as it actually was and continues to be in the threat that it posed and continues to pose to American democracy. Trigby, I remember talking to a friend of ours, an Egyptian guy who was in Tahrir Square when Mubarak fell. And I remember he called me and he said, are you okay? I said, I'm not okay. I'm not okay at all. And he said, well, you know, where I come from, we're used to this kind of thing. He said the issue is for him is that, one, we look to you guys as the people who know how to do this stuff, who get it right year in and year out. And he said the other part that worried him was that once violence enters the picture, it's sometimes very hard to get it back out again. You know, thankfully, I'm going to knock on wood here. We have seen political violence, not in the context of, you know, perhaps another coup attempt or attack on a state building or a state official, but in supermarkets and synagogues and in those kinds of places. We have seen, you know, people driven by an America first or white Christian nationalist ideology 
that is still very powerful. I mean, I, you know, the other night Tucker Carlson was doing a piece on the speaker's race and he said the only two things in his mind McCarthy would have to give up, you know, to get his vote for speaker would be to open all the files on January 6th and then also install a, you know, church committee style, you know, a living operation without anesthetic on, on the FBI and the CIA, you know, because I think Tucker wanted 1-6 to work. And I think there's a lot of people who still feel that way. And I think that there's millions of Americans who are either radicalized or, to Jeff's point, are willing to go along with it. The Tucker thing is fascinating to me because, in truth, I think what Tucker understands is it would never be enough for Tucker, right? Like, so release the one six, you know, all the files. No matter how many files they release, he's going to want more. And they're going to glam on to one or two things that they can build further conspiracy theory around. That's what they do. That's how Lesnea Informatia works, right? It's false information with a purpose. So you take little pieces of fact, you weave them in, and the, you know, it's all about an attempt to get people things that they can glam on to and, and say, this is why we're right, they're wrong, we're good, they're evil. You know, here's a thought that I was having, you know, because obviously you have the speaker stuff going on, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit, but it's the same 20 people to a degree that were the most ardent, active participants in what led to 1-6, who are now once again being active and attempting to create chaos in another election result and the process of transition. Now, they can say this is democracy at work. That's one of their narratives. Democracy is ugly. But again, they're just trying to use the process against itself. And that's what we saw in 1-6. And both of these have a similarity in that they're things that haven't happened to a large degree. I don't think we've gone seven votes for a speaker since 1863. The Capitol hadn't been sacked, and it wasn't even by U.S. citizens since the British did it. So we're talking about things that they're big events. They haven't happened in multiple, multiple generations, 100 years. It's a huge deal. It is a huge deal. And I think, Jeff, this is the one thing that I think gets lost in the absolute desire for the Acela Corridor, the media, the donor set, the Beltway to have some sort of normalcy, which is... No one can believe it, but they don't want to believe they can't believe it. I mean, think about this. I, as I was listening to this this morning, NPR Morning Edition had Frank Luntz on to talk about Kevin McCarthy, referred to him as a good friend, right? Then gave Luntz, you know, five or six minutes to extol the virtues of a Kevin McCarthy speakership. Did not mention that he's his roommate. And, you know, Luntz goes on, oh, he's a very nice guy. He learns like all of the things that like might make a donor or corporate America feel better, but are only going to entrench the likes of Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert further. They don't like him precisely because he's a nice guy, precisely because he is a swamp creature. As I said the other night, like McCarthy's constituency is the donor set in corporate America and K Street. It is not the individual base Republican voter who, you know, even if McCarthy's got 202 votes or whatever, most of the people in his conference come from districts that are so gerrymandered, right? Those are MAGA districts. Now, they've been told you got to get on board. They've been threatened, whatever the case might be. But the truth is, is that very few people have any love 
for Kevin McCarthy. And the truth is, the further up the food chain in the Republican Party you go, the less people love him. They're normalizing the abnormal. The Frank Luntz example is perfect of that. The donor class, the institutional Republican set, the media is all trying to now normalize Kevin McCarthy as what was the Republican Party before Donald Trump. And the truth is, I mean, he has nothing but lipstick. He is the lipstick on the pig. If Kevin McCarthy becomes speaker through all of this, he will have only done so by giving every last bit of concession, any power of the speaker's office to these 20 America First Ultra Magus. The news this morning that now one person can call the chair position or question, the concession to Club for Growth about playing with his super PAC in open Republican primaries, item after item that has prevented the inmates from completely running the asylum. All those walls are down, and he will be speaker in name only. He has completely neutered the position that he's sought and will have no power in it, and they will have no power in it. But they're willing to go along for appearance sake or delude themselves to think that, well, once he's in there, he'll make things normal, but he'll have no ability and no power to really do that. Right. And Trigby, this is one thing where we can bring both McCarthy's speaker fight and McCarthy's, I think Jeff called him an accessory after the fact. Kevin McCarthy, post-January 6th, flew to Mar-a-Lago And in his role as minority leader of the United States House, an institution and a building that had just been attacked, violently attacked, and gave Trump absolution. Yeah, he did. And I mean, Kinsinger talks about that all the time, right? That that was the biggest sin. He resuscitated Donald Trump. I think some of what's going on here, though, to Jeff's point is, being in D.C., maybe even more sensitive to this than you guys, but you know this, like there is a desire. Whether something's good or bad matters less than is it predictable and stable or is it unstable, right? Because you can deal with good or bad if you know the rules of the game and you you understand how to confront it. The issue here is there's also the human nature of wanting the illusion of stability versus the reality of instability. And the truth of the matter is here in DC. The class of, you know, the lobbyists, the media class, the power class, they're desperately opining for that stability in what they know, not fully realizing when you have events occurring around elections, which are the foundation of politics and the transition of power, that there's something completely different going on and it's incredibly unstable. You know, you saw that after 1-6, an attempt to diminish it. An attempt to, okay, you know, but Biden's in office, all's back to normal. You may see that after a speaker is elected, well, the process worked, the guardrails held. But when you start having multiple events, again, that haven't happened in a century, there's something else greater going on and there's a level of instability. And it's a completely different game, certainly, that enough people are playing that have influence that it's happening, that it's a different reality. And so they can hope and wish for that stability to return, just like Timmer can hope and wish that somehow the Lions are going to beat the Packers on Sunday night and get in the playoffs. But it doesn't change the reality that it's a different game. Or maybe it's me who's not living in reality that Aaron Rodgers and the Packers aren't what they used to be and Timmer's Lions are. 
you know, to continue your Packers analogy, it might be that, you know, just like everything else as it's fading, right, has a few flashes before it finally goes dark. And I'm not saying that that's going to happen to our political system or our government. But to your point, Trigby and Jeff, this is something that, you know, we saw as we're recording this, I saw three different articles, one from Politico, one from the New York Times and one from Bloomberg, all Donald Trump's power is waning as no votes come his way, you know, go McCarthy's way after his I'm still with McCarthy. I'm like, well, first of all, if McCarthy's his guy, McCarthy still has more votes by a long shot, by 90 percent than anybody else. Second, the people even said, like, we know our president is asking us to do this. But, you know, we're respectfully saying, Mr. President, we're going to do our own thing. And lastly, Trump doesn't care who's speaker and he loves chaos as much as these other 20 idiots. So, like, again, back to what Stuart would call the normalcy bias that Trigby was just talking about. Is that the desperation that three major news outlets would write damn near the same story in the same day, which they've all been writing since November, but they don't understand if it's Trump or it's MAGA, whatever, they're interchangeable at this point. In fact, MAGA might have gone past Trump, but the ultra-Orthodox MAGA people love this stuff. This is what they want. Absolutely, and that's why I've been lamenting for the last couple of years since Trump left office, there seems to be a default position in every article that's written. The lead is seems to be like it's a macro that's set on everybody's computer that Trump's power is diminishing. It's not. Every bit of evidence continues to show that he continues to wag the dog. Every single thing in the Republican Party revolves around what Trump does, what Trump says, who Trump supports, who Trump doesn't support, what Trump thinks, what Trump has put on Truth Social, what Trump might do, how Trump might react. Yet they continue to say, well, he's, his power is diminishing. It's not what it used to be. There's no evidence, not one shred of evidence to back up that statement that everybody asserts as fact. And look, remember, as we go back to November of 2022, what are these same establishment types, which is a narrow, more and more narrow sliver of individuals, but a wider share of money? And I'll get to that in a second. Why were they upset with Trump? Because he tried to overthrow the government? No. Because he cut taxes for the wealthiest? No. Because he nominated a bunch of wacko, conservative, unqualified judges? No. Because he gave voice to a white nationalist, racist, revanchist movement? No. They were upset because they blame him for costing them seats and seats equal power. That's why they blamed him. Not because of any of the things he'd done previously that are disqualifying, certainly as an American president or political leader, and just largely as a human being, but because he cost them power. And that's why they were upset with him. And I think that that, to me, like a McCarthy, shows you that McCarthy is willing to give up everything to hold a wooden mallet in his hand that might as well be a wet spaghetti noodle. He is no better than Trump or Gates or Boebert because he too is willing to do anything for his own personal aggrandizement so that he can have a bust in the hallway and a portrait on the wall and he can say he was Speaker of the House. And we should never forget that. He is maybe worse because he is fully admitting he's willing to do those things. He doesn't even have principle in the fact. I mean, at least Paul Ryan, even if you disagreed with his politics or his policy ideas, knew what they were. John Boehner, maybe he wasn't hard and fast on a given policy, but he was an institutionalist. He knew the job and he was willing to do it. These people from McCarthy on down have no desire whatsoever to make this normal. McCarthy is willing 
to help them set the fire and watch the house literally burn down around him so long as he can be sitting in the seat cackling and cradling a gavel while it burns. Well, here's the teaching moment from my perspective of having watched autocratic and vertical entities up front. Like, and you guys have heard this all the time. Listeners might find it interesting. The difference between Kevin McCarthy and his ilk and say a Mitch McConnell or a Paul Ryan or those guys is that Kevin McCarthy has been an enabler. And we talked about the trip to Mar-a-Lago. The others have appeased. And there is a difference. In the game we're in, there is a difference between those who appease and those who enable. And the other piece about Kevin McCarthy is, let's face it, he's a weak human being. The irony with McCarthy, though, is everybody in D.C. is talking about, well, he's giving away the store. He'll just be speaker in name only, all the rest of this stuff. But at the end of the day, what's kind of ironic about it is, and this is why I don't think he'll get there, and it's probably already happening. By embracing the chaos, eventually those people of power who want stability outside of Congress, the people that he's supposed to represent, are going to say, Kevin, enough. You're not managing this situation. Now, compare that to what Kevin McCarthy was going through to what Joe Biden and Mitch McConnell were doing, right? They're together at a bridge, you know, on the Kentucky-Ohio border talking about what the infrastructure bill has done for both Ohio and Kentucky, right? And Kevin McCarthy, by just wanting to be and not wanting to do anything, he's the perfect foil and those people are the perfect foil when an autocrat comes along. The other thing is, it's a little interesting to me that when we talk about what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, it's sort of the same deal. I mean, we can wish that Putin would see the light. We could wish that Putin would accept the reality that's clearly as we know it. But in truth, that just doesn't happen. It isn't the way these people work. Yeah, well, I would agree with everything you said, Trigvi, in your characterization of McCarthy. If he becomes speaker, he will be the Jerry Falwell Jr. of speakers. I mean, he's allowed only to sit in the corner while the pool boy really wields the gavel, <laughs> if you know what I mean there. Swings the hammer, so to speak. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I really think, though, I understand and appreciate your distinction between the enablers and the appeasers. But I don't think we should let somebody like Mitch McConnell off that easy because Mitch McConnell has possessed the ability to really wield a damaging blow to Donald Trump for the last two years or during his time in the White House, has rejected doing that or has failed to do that because of power. Mitch McConnell would turn around tomorrow and embrace Donald Trump and go to Mar-a-Lago if he thought it would put him in the majority leader's position in 2024. You might think differently. You know him, you've worked with him, you know him better than I do, but that's my read on it. If he thought it would that he would gain power that the Senate Republicans would assume the majority, he would do anything that he thought would get there. Well, and, you know, just one thing on, on McConnell, as the senators were sworn back in or the new senators were sworn in or reelected, you know, McConnell was celebrating the fact that he was the longest serving leader, minority or majority leader. Like that's marking time. Like who cares? You know, but that's the kind of thing that McConnell loves because it says, look, I've been here through good and bad, up and down, Republican and Democrat, and I'm the survivor. It's something where, again, he'll get his picture on the wall or whatever. But, I, you know, at the end of the day, to Jeff's point, what's on the ledger, was he good or bad? 
And I think that to Jeff's point, you know, there are now at least three Republican senators, now former Republican senators who've left office. You know, he could have gotten to 67 votes roughly two years ago, and he chose not to. And when it came to forming a bipartisan, bicameral January 6th commission, Mitch McConnell said it would be a personal favor to him if his members voted against it. So I think to Jeff's point, McConnell's also very, very savvy about this, right, which is he knew that going and sitting with Biden would make the crazies crazy, which is what he wanted to do. It would be a thumb in their eye, which is what he wanted to give them. And it would highlight his ability to do things versus McCarthy's inability to get anything done, which also, you know, let's be clear, if this new proposal he's put forth to the 20 crazies, which is one member of Congress can call a vote to revoke his speakership, then he won't outlast the head of lettuce that we posted on Twitter yesterday. Because now it's like, Trigvi, you mentioned Ukraine, right? No funding for Ukraine, he's out, right? Debt ceiling, no debt ceiling, or he's out. No nothing, or he's out. And, you know, yes, McCarthy might be complicit with Trump, but he is trying to appease the worst of his conference. And, you know, he's already given up Austria and the Sudetenland. Poland's next, right? Because every time he offers something, they ask for something, he offers it to them, he gives it to them. Now they say, well, now I want this. Because again, they don't care. They're agents of chaos. And so if they can break his back and break his spirit and break his will, and at the end of the day, he's a puddle on the floor and they throw a, you know, a gavel at him, what do they care, right? I mean, they want four Freedom Caucus seats on the Rules Committee, which is the committee that determines what goes to the floor. They want armed services and, you know, intel. I mean, think about this. They'll demand he put insane, probably Russia-affiliated members on the, the House Intelligence Committee. The crown jewels. This is the thing. This is how historic a point we're at. If this had gone on, even until fairly recently, I think until the dawn of Trump, that you had this small group. There's the core five, and then there's the 15 around the core five. If this had been going on in the 80s or whenever, even later, what McCarthy would have done is gone to Jeffries and probably to Pelosi and said, I need five votes because I don't want to have to cave on all these things for the institution. And he would have gotten the votes because they would have protected the institution. The thing is, though, Kevin McCarthy can't do that because he's an enabler and going down to Mar-a-Lago and all the rest. He can't build the coalition the way the system is intended to do that. Now, the question that ultimately rests is really where the rubber meets the road on all of this is eventually somebody is going to probably put Steve Scalise's name into nomination if those five people hold. And I don't see any way that McCarthy is going to peel them off. Maybe Rupert Murdoch could, you know, McCarthy could cut enough deals to get the 15 and then he's got to get one of the five. And Rupert Murdoch basically says the first one of you who steps up is going to get a lifetime contract to be on Fox. The rest of you will never be seen or heard from again. Maybe that would move them. But short of that, what's going to happen is Scalise is going to get nominated at some point. We'll see if Scalise can make it. If Scalise can't make it, this could go on for a really long time. And, and where it's going to eventually land, if that's the case, in all likelihood, is some kind of consensus speaker 
And if you're Bobert and those guys, you're perfectly good with that because it gives you something to rail on and tear down the majority. And quite frankly, when it comes to the political side of it, they'll be running candidates against every single one of these incumbents. And the potential that McCarthy has neutered the ability of the CLF to go after and defend these people or go after the crazies. So, Jeff, that's the one thing I do want to bring up. So one of y'all mentioned the Club for Growth, which is a right wing wacko super PAC, and the CLF, the Congressional Leadership Fund, that's McCarthy's super PAC, had cut a deal not to attack one another's candidates. Okay, so we've got outside groups to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars now cutting deals about who they will and won't attack in primaries a year from now or so. But let's talk about CLF for a second. CLF raised nearly $260 million in the 22 cycle on the back of McCarthy going to people who like Steve Schwartzman and Chuck Schwab and all these other people who are putting in millions and millions of dollars and other people who he was inviting to $100,000 a plate dinners and lunches saying, I need the money so I can elect 20 or 30, quote, normal Republicans so that I can get this thing back in hand. You know, and now they've got a nine seat majority. You know, even if Kevin gets the speaker's gavel, that will be, you know, to his eternal humiliation, right? He will be emasculated. He's already emasculated. That's what it'll be. And so now you have all these players, right, who are like, oh, let me try and figure out how I can short circuit this process with money. But the thing that is interesting is that a lot of these people, the 20 and maybe even a lot more, they don't need that money. A lot of these people raise a gobs and gobs of money in very conservative districts from small dollar donors. And so it's like, well, you're not going to get CLF help. Okay. There's a carrot and a stick involved in this. It's been the committee assignments, the support in primaries, all of the perks that go with it. But there's also been the stick, which is we're going to fuck with you on committees. We're going to take you out in a primary if you don't play along and get along to go along. The ability to enforce or entice any discipline any team effort pulling in one direction is all gone. And whatever happens, if McCarthy is speaker, those 20 will wield immense power every day, every minute of the next two years, and they'll use their position to create continued chaos. Or, as Trigby said, they don't care if there's a consensus if Fred Upton or anybody else becomes the consensus candidate with the support of the Democrats and a few Republicans. That's quite honestly probably their hope. They would love to see that because to them it would be further example of the swamp continuing to run Washington, and they would use it to raise even more money and gain more media attention, more clicks on their social media, which they equate to their power, and it probably is their power. So that's what they hope to gain out of this. And let's face it, and CLF's a good example of this, right? So CLF transfers. I mean, it's Kevin McCarthy's super PAC right now because he's the leader. If somebody else becomes a leader, it becomes their super PAC. There's hundreds of millions of dollars at stake to people in this town over whether Kevin McCarthy's speaker or somebody else's speaker. Hundreds of millions between the lobbyist crew who give the money to the consultants who do work for CLF. That is incredibly lucrative business if you can be making ads for CLF. 
And so that's part of the reason why you have all these people that are desiring that stability, because there's tons of dollars at stake. The other side where there's dollars at stake, though, for those 20 and certainly those five, you know, Matt Gates and Bobert and all those people are probably raising a boatload of money. And it isn't just from their district. It's nationally that they can raise by creating chaos because there's the whole chaos constituency that donates. It's, you know, it's all the people that donate to Trump. And that ends up tying back in to the people who are enablers and appeasers. Ron and Romney McDaniel, for example, why can't she quit Trump? She can't quit Trump because that's where they raise their money. And that goes to fund a bunch of people who, you know, get contracts and whatnot. And the crazy part about Ron and Romney McDaniel, which I'm sure we'll talk about at some point down the line, but she's probably going to get booted as chair for somebody who's even more so. And the truth of the matter is the mega, ultra mega, traditional Republican fight it's about a lot of things. It's about power, but that power equates a lot of money. And the irony is there's a whole lot of people who are being played for rubes. And on the Kevin McCarthy thing, as you were sort of talking through, Reed, all those donors who gave him $100,000 or more, God, did they get played. They got played just as bad as the Trump people who bought yard signs for 50 bucks and the LLC that owned the company that was distributing them was likely owned by Trump people. Right. No. And I mean, I think, Jeff, that's the one thing, too, is that I think it's an important reminder here. You know, it's a broader based problem, I think, but I think it's acute within the Republican Party and the American First Movement, which is they're a gang. They're only interested in power, money and turf. Right. There's no belief system. And again, McCarthy might believe in less than Matt Gates does. I don't know what the hell Matt Gates believes in, but McCarthy doesn't believe in anything. And I think the one point I think you made, which is so important, is if McCarthy becomes speaker or any Republican becomes speaker, that is the beginning of the chaos, not the end. What we've seen now is sort of the warm-up act. They turn a cold engine over and they're sort of revving it up to see what they can do. They haven't left the driveway yet. That's true. If it's Scalise or Elise Stefanik or Pat McHenry or anybody else on the Republican side who can cobble together the 218 votes, if it's not McCarthy, they will have had to give up what McCarthy did and then some to get there. And so the chaos is only beginning. But I've said, and I continue to, as all eyes are on what the Republicans are doing, watch the Democrats. <laughs> because Nancy Pelosi and Jim Clyburn and Steny Hoyer and Hakeem Jeffries are very wily. And this couldn't have gone better for them these last couple of days. And they're letting this play out. And they've got some cards to play. They've got their 212 people in lockstep, and they've gamed out exactly what they're going to do and when they're going to do it. They're just letting the narrative and the chaos continue up until a point where the Republicans can either move on from McCarthy and elect somebody else, or they're going to make a move with a coalition candidate that includes some Republican votes and all of the Democrats, whether that's somebody from outside like Fred Upton or whether that's Hakeem Jeffries negotiating, okay, I need six Republicans, you can chair these committees. I would watch what the Democrats are doing. They're sitting over there like the cat who swallowed the canary, waiting for the opportunity and waiting for the time to be right to play their cards. Well, and I think it's been interesting to see, what are they calling her, uh, Speaker Emerita Pelosi, 
literally Trigby sitting in the second to last row of the Democratic side of the House chamber in giving, you know, Democratic members new, middle-aged and old sort of strategic, like she's literally leading like a strategic forum as this thing unfolds. She's going, okay, here's how this is going to work. And here's what's their problem. And here's this and this, here's that. And here's why the 212 of us are going to stick in this. This is why we're all going to stay in this chamber. I know you don't want to be here. I don't want to be here either, but we're all going to be here. And then she gets asked a question. What do you think? She goes, I feel really bad for the kids. The kids of these people who came to see their parents get sworn in. They've got school. Now they're stuck here. You know, and this is someone, remember, guys, we fought for many years. She is so much better at this <laughs> than anybody on the Republican side. And she's also smart that she's letting Jeffries take the lead, right? She's not going to undercut him. And she's not undercutting her whip. And she's not undercutting the leader. You know, she's making sure that they are at the well, they're at the lectern. But it is a fascinating leadership matrix that I think both now and we saw even two years ago. When the time came, Democrats made the right strategic move for their presidential nominee, which was they were going to get Bernie, and they said, we can't have Bernie. Let's go to Biden. He's not anybody's favorite, right? He's older than we'd like. He's not as dynamic or progressive as we'd like, but he's the guy that can win. And it's an interesting thing to see that when the moment of crisis is occurring, that the Democrats are somehow finding footing. Well, I think a lot of that's Nancy Pelosi, even with the Biden thing, right? She and Clyburn. I mean, that is what saved the Democrats from nominating Bernie Sanders and the Republic from having Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders running against each other, which, you know, Bernie Sanders is committed to democracy, but that would have been a very different race than with Joe Biden. I think the thing with Pelosi, and I've said this to you guys, you know, I have a politician that I know well who Democrats tend to hate, who always would talk in terms of worthy adversaries and ones who weren't. And the ones who were worthy, who this person might disagree with 90% of the time, Nancy Pelosi was one of the worthy adversaries because she was equally good at moving pieces and stood for something and was trying to achieve it and was worthy of the fight. You know, sometimes what people miss about our politics you know, it's a little bit like sports, right? You got the guy on the other team who has a lot of successes. He's really good. You're looking at him and you hate him because they beat you and you don't like that. And so you use that as motivation to be better yourself. And yet when you end up having the opportunity to play on the same team with them, you're thinking to yourself, wow, this person is somebody that's great to have on your side. In fact, there's a great documentary, I think it's on HBO, about Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. You know, they hated each other and they used each other for inspiration because they used to beat each other all the time. And they go out there and they made each other better. And then when they got to know each other, they ended up really liking each other and they got a chance to play together on the dream team. And in reality, that's kind of the way it is with Nancy Pelosi. That applies to politics, too. So, guys, you know, it's the second anniversary of January 6th. Again, as we're recording, the drama slash chaos of the House chamber is still ongoing. But let's look forward a little bit to 2023. So we'll have divided government, theoretically, but maybe we won't. Donald Trump announced his run for the presidency a week after Election Day has basically gone to ground since then. There are other people who say they want to run for president who are sort of lurking about. And so I think, guys, that 2023 will be as impactful, if not more impactful, on what happens next year. So, Jeff, give us your sense of, as we're here the first week of January, give us your sense looking down the, the road three, six, nine months. First, I'm looking at Tallahassee, where DeSantis is sitting and watching Donald Trump and just biding his time, waiting for 
if, when, how to announce his run. I think that he's waiting for Donald Trump to be subject to a perp walk and indictments in Georgia, New York, federal indictment, whatever. Right now, the non-race for the Republican nomination, I think, is the big thing looming over 2024. It also, you know, Joe Biden, it, all the signs are pointing toward him announcing a run for re-election at some point in the next probably 60, 90 days tops. You know, there's indications that it will be sooner rather than later. But I think the one thing I've come to expect is the unexpected. Expect surprises. The smart bet is on a Biden-Trump rematch, but I think the ones who, who win at the tables are the ones who bet outside the expectations. The Republican race, it, it continues, Trump continues to be in the dominant position. I think extremely dominant. I don't see how in a one-on-one -on -one race, I don't see how DeSantis or anyone else beats him. In a, certainly in a crowded field, I don't see how anyone beats him. And if DeSantis runs, I don't think there's any way it's not a crowded field because the Josh Hawleys and the Ted Cruz's and everybody else out there is going to jump in and try to get their shot at this. And so they're all having talks, I'm sure, every day about what's going to happen with Trump, what's going to happen with the indictments, when do we do this, how do we do this, who goes first, who blinks. That's going to continue to be a story. It's the non-movement in the Republican race, I guess is my long way of saying so far the biggest story of 2023, and how long that continues into 2023 is going to continue to be the biggest story. Trigby, what's going on with Trump? He's basically gone to ground. What's going on? Is it that he doesn't need to do anything? He has the advantage that he can pick his spots. And in some ways, I don't know if we've ever talked about it on the show. We talk about it all the time amongst three of us. He's got smarter people politically around him than he has previously. He's still got a bunch of idiots, but he has some pretty smart people. Picking his spots is a pretty good strategy, like injecting his crazy once in a while, injecting himself where he can and not, and dominating while not having to be as active is a good place for him to be. As far as the primaries themselves, here's the thing. All the talk about DeSantis, Trump, can they get him one-on-one? -on -one? Is it a multiple field? I agree with Jeff. If it's a multiple field, I don't see how they stop Trump. But you've got all these people who think, well, if we can just get DeSantis one-on-one -on -one with Trump, we can beat him back. But what that's not taking into account is that DeSantis isn't very good at this. Well, there's that. And then there's also what's going on in the House. I tweeted and it kind of got picked up. You know, the House is the exact perfect representative model of the GOP in the country today. Here's the thing. <laughs> what we're seeing is there is a wing, even if it's 10 percent, that's willing to burn the House down, in this case, literally the House of Representatives. And that would be true of Donald Trump and his supporters with the Republican Party if they feel like DeSantis won because the establishment chose him and defeated Trump, I think you have the same scenario. Now, if it's DeSantis versus Biden, you know, DeSantis and these guys are going to try and stoke the Joe Biden's evil and what about and all the rest of it. They're going to lay the groundwork. The down payment on that's going to happen this year. You know, where whether it's Trump or DeSantis, 
the key is going to be peeling off either the MAGA people, the reverse Bannon line or the Bannon line, depending on which one it is. And I think the Republican Party probably is kind of doomed either way because they're fighting within themselves. But that doesn't mean it, they're not dangerous. In fact, they're more dangerous and it has to be assured that they do doom themselves. I think DeSantis is a placeholder. He's the flavor. We've talked about this before. We haven't seen him outside of Tallahassee. I think this is the other part, too, that goes back to the whole the whole MAGA movement, which is each one of these guys, whether or not it's DeSantis or any of them, they know they are damned if they do and damned if they don't. They can't be the establishment because the MAGAs will stay home. And the MAGAs are nihilists. They don't care. To your point, Trigby, earlier about, you know, a consensus speaker that allows Gates and Boebert to just rail on everybody all the time, like they don't care. Right. In some ways, they like being out of power more than they like being in power because it gives them all the noise making ability they want without any of the responsibility of having to do anything. And so if you look at this field, you know, potential field, they're all going to have to play footsies with these terrible individuals. They're all going to have to do that because they can't not do it and have any real hope, even if Trump weren't around. As you've said, Trigby, what's the thing that they would all want? Trump's endorsement. The blessing, such as it is, Jeff, of, you know, the Beelzebubs that run Magaland. It's going to come down to what does Steve Bannon and Charlie Kirk say about DeSantis or Nikki Haley or Ted Cruz. If Trump were to take himself out or if fate takes Trump out, everything is about who can be the most Trump-like, who can appease those around him, those bottom feeders who continue to be the loudest voices around Mar-a-Lago and around Trump world, despite bringing in veterans and good pros like Chris Lasavita, it's still the Jason Millers and Steve Bannons that wield the biggest sticks in, in that world. Yeah. And I mean, the establishment, such as it is, can, you know, spend all the money it wants. Like, let's just say this. Did Trump have an effect on 2022? He did. Why? Because you know, without his endorsement, Dr. Oz isn't the nominee, J.D. Vance isn't the nominee, Tim Michaels in Wisconsin isn't the nominee, probably Carrie Lake isn't the nominee. And so he does have an effect. Oh, it's only one or two points. It doesn't matter. It's not a unanimous thing, right? He only has to get enough people to do this. And I think that's the same thing with the MAGA movement within the states. I mean, Jeff, you've, you've lived this world. You see these people now. You used to run the Michigan Republican Party, but now you get to observe it. I mean, these are not normal people. No, they're not. And the bottom feeders, the forces of darkness like Steve Bannon, haven't done many things right when it comes to the national politics and winning national elections, federal races. But one thing they've done extremely well is position themselves for the long game. They have infiltrated the very depths of the Republican Party. After the next couple of months, they'll control the Republican National Committee even more so than they do today, but they control all the state parties, right down to the county parties across the, the country, the local party committees, right down to the precinct delegate slots. They have done a unbelievable job that hasn't been done in generations of recruiting people at the grassroots, mobilizing them to sign up for these positions where they will control the Republican Party for years and years and years because no one else wants to. 
they saw an opening and they've filled it. They're not going to get normal people to now show up at these conventions in states and counties to take on these rabid, insane people who are willing to go to the mat and, you know, bite their neighbors over who becomes the precinct delegate and convention delegate to, you know, go vote on the next state party chair in Michigan or Wisconsin or whatever state we're talking about. And so they've really played the long game. And the toothpaste is now out of the tube. It will continue far beyond Donald Trump and will outlive Donald Trump, according to the actuarial tables. Well, and they're doing it school board races, city councils, county boards, right? And what extremists do is, to Jeff's point, they create so much chaos that those who would be sane and rational or not extreme don't want to even get involved because the grossness gets thrown on you. What's ironic about it is they probably would have fought if their leaders had all stood up and said, this is worth fighting for. But why would they stand up and fight when you have all these people? And this is where, you know, I say people like McConnell, total appeasement, weren't willing to stand up and fight for themselves. The only people who really stood up loudly and fought were the 10 that voted for impeachment in the House and some in the Senate. And most of them backed off. The only ones who were really fighting were Liz and Adam. And then they look like a small minority because all the extremists start attacking them, right? And they get basically booted out because those who sat and appeased in silence aren't saying anything to defend them either. I think the other thing we have to understand is extremists escalate to negotiate. So they're constantly escalating to get a bigger piece of the pie. And you're seeing that with McCarthy. I think ultimately, at the end of the day, what Reid said about Trump Politics is a game of small numbers. Reed, you say that all the time. What you have to understand about Republican primaries and Trump, he's doing exactly in many ways and has the success for the same foundational underlying reasons that we at the Lincoln Project have success in beating these guys back with the Bannon line. In Republican primaries, Trump's endorsement is probably worth six to eight to 10 percent of the vote. And that ends up tipping the election to his candidates. It's the same thing that we know that in most of these states, if we can convince 4% of Republicans or more to either skip or to switch, it becomes really hard for the anti-democratic candidates to win. That's exactly what Trump is doing in Republican primaries. And the final point that I would make is, you know, for those of us who've worked on presidential campaigns, which all three of us have, for those of you who haven't, I'm going to give you a little secret. When they're sitting looking at this, there's on the Republican side, all the thinking right now at this point is about how you raise money and what you do with activists in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. That's all they're thinking about. Which really equates to how much do you have to pay them? Right. Which gets back to the money, which gets back to things like debates and whatever else you can do to get buzz. And the thing about Iowa and South Carolina is even if Trump's not on the field, Trump's endorsement is the most valuable thing in Iowa and South Carolina. And even if Trump isn't running, you want Matt Gates going to Northwest Iowa because he will draw people and get buzz. And you also know that the Iowa caucuses, if the House is an exact representation and 10% of it is radicalized chaos people, it's probably 20% in the Iowa caucuses of people who agree with that notion. The Trump people get that. And that's why they can pick their spots. I mean, 
All Trump has to do is throw stuff out occasionally to remind, whereas Ron DeSantis and his team had to convince and switch them. And the only way that he does that is by out-trumping Trump. And you can't out-trump Trump. So then it becomes a question of where's your path? And I don't see New Hampshire being fertile territory as the place where Ron DeSantis upends Donald Trump. I'm throwing this down now that Ron DeSantis is the Fred Thompson of Rudy Giuliani's, of Phil Graham's, <laughs> of John Connolly's. He is the next it thing that never gets out of the gate. You can tell in his eyes. Go back to that Charlie Chris debate when he froze. That's the moment that I think defines his step to the national political stage. He doesn't have what it takes to get into the ring with a real contender. No. And I don't think any of these, as I've said repeatedly, there are all these stories. And we started talking about this, I think, in November, but all these stories right around Christmas about, you know, these people taking time with their families over their holidays to discuss what's next. And I'm like, yeah, you know, in a normal world, you know, you do that man in the mirror or woman in the mirror moment, right, where you look and you say, can I, I can be president, I can be president. The problem for these people is that when they look in the mirror, Donald Trump's looking back at him. And it is not the same fight. To your point, Trigvi, they are all conventional candidates. Got to build a campaign. Got to find the activists. Got to have the comms shop. Got to have the political shop. Got to have policy. All these other, like, and Trump shows up with an airplane and 15 or 20,000 people show up in a field to see him. It's just not the same game. If they were smart, they'd all be declared and attacking him now, saying it's over, it's over, it's over. But one of y'all mentioned the word perp walk. Look, I do believe that probably sometime in the first six months of this, this year, Trump will be indicted on federal charges of one item or another. How are his primary opponents going to deal with that when the activist class of the Republican Party and MAGA and Bannon and Fox and all of them come to his defense? What are they going to do? They're going to say he stole files and he shouldn't be president again. He's a national security threat. He's a disaster. He's incompetent. They're going to say that? They should, but they won't. Because ultimately, if they do, they're not viable in a general election. So their best path to viability and the path of least resistance is to say nothing at best, or they'll be forced to say stuff, and they will. It's a mess. And this, gentlemen, as we close, is the problem with making a deal with the devil. Even if you get what you want, he still gets your eternal soul. Damnation is upon you. 30 pieces of silver and a bite of the apple is a real thing, Reed. All right. And these people are taking their silver and eating their apples as fast as they possibly can. Okay. Trigvi, Jeff, thank you for joining me. Trigvi, where can our listeners find you online? They can find me at Trigvi, T-R-Y-G-V-E Olson on Twitter. And Jeff, how about you? They can find me on Twitter at Jeff Timmer or on Post, same name. As always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Gents, look forward to having you back in the spring so we can reassess where we are. Always love having you guys on. As always, gang, thanks for everything, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, 
To join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.